What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Brooklyn Boxing Podcast. I am joined by a very special guest in the MMA landscape, Tony Christendulo. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, Patrick, for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. I know you're joining us from overseas here over in Monaco, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Tell me a little bit about that. What's got you over there? Uh, so I retired from fighting um, a few years ago. And uh, once I retired in the beginning, I was working mostly with just MMA athletes and boxers, professionally, and that's, I was only sticking to that. But a, about two or three years ago, I started training this guy named Joe Fournier, who is like a very wealthy uh, club entrepreneur, who also happened to be a, is a professional boxer. Uh, he just fought uh, against David Hay on the Triller show. Uh, I didn't train him for that fight, but I trained Joe Fournier for about a, almost two years. And while I was doing that, Joe Fournier let, told me, listen, Tone, I think that you got an act with people and with my circle of friends. I know they would love to have you and train with you and have you around full time. I really think that this is a place you could take your career. So I just started trying, uh, I started training high-end clients, uh, working exclusively for like one or two clients and traveling around the world with them wherever they go. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm in, uh, I should have mentioned earlier, I'm in Miami myself, so I do a lot of stuff out of the Fifth Street gym and been down here for a few months. So tell me maybe about like your time over there and obviously Dino, he's got his guy, Daniele, fighting this afternoon over in Milan, so good luck to those guys. But um, yeah, pretty a pretty special place, right? With a lot of different characters, a lot of different fighters and different disciplines. It's like a, it's a, it's like a crock pot of fighting. Uh, generally, Dino's always been like that. Like Dino's, so a little backstory on this. So when I was 18 years old, actually 17 years old, I, I moved back to the States. I was living in Greece at the time. That's where my family's from. I was born in the States from four years old. I, I was back in Greece and I was, I came to Dino's, I came to Chicago. Dino was living in Chicago at the time and he opened a gym called Flow MMA. And I was looking for a place to train. Now I was a super fat kid. I was like 265 pounds at the time, five, six, 265, non-athletic bone in my body. Uh, I walked into Dino's gym. Uh, I was at a blue belt in jujitsu, and I and I met Dino. I'm like, "Hey, man, I want to be a UFC fighter." And Dino was like, "Sure, come back in tomorrow, and uh, we'll train. No, no big deal." And uh, since after that, I left, went to every other gym in Chicago, and everyone else kind of laughed me away when I told him I wanted to be a UFC fighter, except for Dino. So mm-hmm. I, I went and I went back with Dino, became super close, and Dino trained me, got me down to like 145 pounds. So he's been my wow. my first coach since MMA always, uh, until I did make it to the UFC, eventually with Dino, and uh, Dino moved to Miami. In, I think it was 2011. I think 2011, 2012, and I moved with them. And I, I mean, I even helped set up the ring in the first Fifth Street gym. So I've been there since day one. Yeah, so you're a day one Fifth Street guy. And what time, yeah. what, how old were you when you first stepped into the gym uh, with your blue belt? At the first, I was about 18 years old. So I was about 17 when I came to the States. 18, I, I think I first like stepped into Dino's gym because I went looking around to tell people like, hey, I want to be a UFC fighter. And like most guys were just kind of like, come on, man. Like, oh, you can take the beginner's class if you want, you know. And, yeah. 
Yeah. How did you get to like, I'm, I'm kind of curious now, like you mentioned, you had like the weight issues and then, but during like that period, you were still a blue belt in jujitsu, which, you know, it still takes a lot of time to go from a white belt to a blue belt. Right. I mean, it's not, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not overnight. So you were, you were actively training, like you must've had some, some goals previously, um, to lose weight or just to get into martial arts in general, like when you first jumped into jujitsu, right? Like when was that time period and was it just to lose weight or was it always a dream of becoming a fighter? So I, I really was into pro wrestling when I was a kid, like really into it. Like I, I had moved when I had moved uh, back to Greece, uh, my father wasn't around. I didn't even meet my dad until I was like six years old. And so my mom was really worried about me becoming like a, a sissy boy. And she was always going to get picked on in school. So she like, didn't know what to show me. So she showed me pro wrestling. And I like went crazy for it. And since I was a kid, I'm like, I'm going to be a pro wrestler, you know, since I'm a child. I mean, to the point it was like ridiculous. Even when I became a teenager, I accidentally watched a UFC video. I accidentally just got brought in to order tapes from the States. And I accidentally got a UFC tape <coughs> with a bunch of my pro wrestling tapes. And I was like, what, what is this with UFC one? And I was like, this wow. is, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, this is for real. Like, how is this? I want to do this. So I started training jujitsu with like a purple belt coach. Cause it wasn't very much in Greece. Like that was the only jujitsu we had there basically. And, um, I had a purple belt coach. I, I, I took, I took a quite a natural, naturally good. I was always pretty good at contact sports. So I was kind of a rough kid and I, I kind of uh, hung around the more rough crowd. And that was just my, that was just my, the environment I, I was more, more go, going towards generally, maybe because of the pro wrestling, my mom overdid it there. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I generally, so I, I took well to it immediately and uh, I didn't want to lose weight to become a fighter, to be honest. Like, I didn't have, like, this, oh, I'm going to lose weight to become a fighter. So my dietary habits were terrible. My relationship with food was was not it was not good, obviously. Uh, but at some point, I was going, I was starting to think, like, man, am I ever going to try to do this pro wrestling thing, or am I going to become a fighter? So I said, you know, I've, I've wanted my whole life to do this pro wrestling thing. Let me try to do this. So around 16 years old, I first went to Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I started rest. I lived with Afa, the Wild Samoan. They're from the Wild Samoan Brothers. They're the uncle of Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Uh, and I pro I did pro wrestling with them for a few for quite a few months, and I was wrestling. And as I was learning how to be a pro wrestler, I was like, this ain't for me. You know, short and fat doesn't work in this industry, you know? But I started losing a bit of weight doing that. And now I was like, I, I need to be a fighter. You know, I, I need to, I like that. I didn't want to just go, I didn't, you know, I didn't jump from that to being an accountant. I went from being like, okay, I'm not going to be a pro wrestler. This is not going to work out. And I like the real deal. I was already into jiu-jitsu. Like I need to be a fighter. Once I went to the States, Dino basically was like, yeah, what are you going to do for heavyweight? Like you're five, six, I'm five, nine now. But I was like, you're five, you're five, 145 pounds. Like, well, don't worry, we'll get you down. And I just, that was, that was the beginning. It was like, that was the decision. Just Dino was like, yeah, you're, you're not fighting. How long, did, how long did it take you to drop to 145? Well, I dropped. So I, I dropped originally really quickly from like 260, about no, about 230. I dropped because I lost some weight into pro wrestling, maybe even like 220 to like 185 pounds, like in four months. 
like four months. I just, I just was like, all right, I'm dieting and exercising. This is my new life. And I did, that's all I did. I also worked as a janitor cause I didn't have uh, the money to pay the gym. So I worked as a janitor in the gym, you know, gave me a job to, as janitor gym so i worked i cleaned and i just i just lived in the gym and i loved hanging out with dino so much that it was like it was the greatest thing ever anyway because i was like oh i get to be with dino all day so it was super fun like i didn't care it was just like it was just too fun you know i was like it's whatever i don't care i'll clean the gym so i was cleaning and training and i lost it super duper fast and then probably took me another like four to five months till i got down to 145 pounds where i had my like my debut match at that point, I had my debut uh, MMA match at 19. And, that, and then once your career got kicked off, you obviously, you know, you had a lot of success and you achieved that childhood dream, right, of being on that big stage under the bright lights, um, not as a wrestler, but in the UFC, <laughs> right? So, I mean, you, you made it to, uh, you know, the ultimate promotion. And, and tell me about... I guess the initial moments or feelings when you were signing that contract or getting into the octagon, like, was it a surreal feeling for you when you think back to your start as a blue belt beating Dino, like figuring out what's next and dropping all that weight. And then next thing, you know, you know, you're fighting for the UFC. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was, it was beyond incredible. Like it was, it was almost, uh, it was almost not real. Look, there was also a lot of stress because uh, I still struggled with my weight even years into being a fighter. I, I, be I became a bit of a yo-yo dieter and uh, I would basically like gain a bunch of weight, lose a ridiculous amount of weight for my fight. And I would do this uh, that really hindered my career generally. And so when I got signed to the UFC originally, I was like 180 no, yeah, 100, almost almost 190 pounds, and I had to fight 155 in three weeks. I had three weeks notice. Yeah, tell so, me about the the like the weight cutting in combat sports in general is has been around forever, but I feel like in the UFC or MMA landscape, really, it's it's so much more severe. Like, there's fighters that I've talked to that it seemed like they dropped 30 pounds the week of the fight in just water weight or. I mean, it's crazy. Like, what's the process for that? I mean, I, I've heard a little bit about the the strategy of basically dehydrating yourself as healthy as possible. But like, what was your approach in dropping the weight that fast? So my approach at my last fight, so I, I fought like uh, one more time after the UFC. Uh, and I've, I, I did it really well and much more properly. And I was much, because I, I had already kind of retired from fighting my, uh, my relationship with food had gotten much better and I'd kind of gotten over my psychological issues with the yo-yo dieting. And that made it much easier, which I, I built muscle throughout the year. And when it was time to fight, I was maybe 20 pounds over. I would diet till I'm like maybe 15 pounds over. Uh, and I would water load for, I would, do, I would do basically five days of two gallons of water a day. And on day six, which was the day before the weigh-ins, I would do a gallon of water that day. I would have two very small meals, very small meals. And then I would start cutting on like at six o'clock at night. I I'm done. I cut the water. I cut the water. I cut the food at six and I start sweating. I started doing like some exercise uh, with sweats on and stuff of that nature. And I'll probably drop like... 
six, seven pounds that way, you know, um, and kind of not going to bananas, slow motion, laughing, making a joke out of it. Then I'll have a little bit of water, just enough to go to sleep, like maybe like 200 milliliters. Uh, and I'll have like an egg or something of that nature and like a cucumber, half a cucumber or something that will just keep me a bit full. Yeah. I'll sleep, wake up. I'll probably drop a pound. So I'll drop the water, whatever I put on, plus the cucumber in the morning. And then I'll start doing hot baths. Uh, and I'll probably do like a 40-minute bath. I'll get out for 10, put towels over me, go back in for go back in for 20, come out, and day then it gets shorter as I get closer. Day of the way? Day of the way. No, yeah. I'll do that, yeah. Especially if I have to... So the fight I did on my last fight, they didn't have early morning weigh-ins. Well, in the UFC, they had the early morning weigh-ins. In the early morning weigh-ins, I do it the night before. I have to get it all done the night before. Wake up very early to get it because I'm just too nervous. The idea that I might miss it gets me too nervous. So uh, I won't water do loading, The water loading, right? I, that's just to kind of get your body just peeing a lot, right? So you're like flushing it out. And then when you start cutting back the water, it's still kind of releasing. Is that the strategy? That, that's a general concept. So there's some, I, I used to know it, I don't remember now, but there's some hormone that get, that's created that helps you uh, urinate and excrete water in different various ways. When you start water loading, from my understanding of it, the, when you start water loading for a prolonged period of time, your body starts creating a lot of that hormone. Uh, when that happens, you will keep sweating and peeing out and you'll realize as you're waterlogging, like you're in the beginning, you're peeing every three seconds. And then yeah. as you're, you know, as the days are passing, you're still peeing every five minutes or so. And uh, you're sweating like you do like a little shadow box and you start dripping sweat. And then once you cut the water, it takes a while for your body that like osmosis to happen to the point that your body kind of... Uh, to rebalance is out and then you stop like start stop sweating you know and if you've done it right you should be able to get the amount of weight that you want off before you completely stop sweating and it becomes extremely difficult yeah it's a crazy it's a crazy process um you know pretty controversial with certain fighters just uh who have released footage of like how extreme their weight cuts have been like i guess the last thing on this subject i'm curious hearing from you is do you think the UFC should implement some change around weight cutting, whether it's you got to be within 10% of your, um, you know, you got to be within 10% of your ring weight compared to on the scales or, or day of fight weigh-ins or anything like that? Or is it just kind of, it is what it is. Like it's kind of unavoidable, the weight cut process. I can't say it's unavoidable because I've heard about this one championship that the way that they do it would basically have a hydration test and they made every weight class about 10 to 15 pounds heavier than mm -hmm. what it is. So like if you are 155 pounds and you're now fighting 165 or 170 and you're still considered a lightweight. So, and that, that, that system seems to work. I mean, at least there, I don't know. I don't want to say it's corrupt or anything, but I don't know how exactly how it's going down there, what's going on. I don't know many fighters there to, to tell you, but from what my friends have told me that have fought there, it seems to work pretty, pretty well. And it doesn't let anybody cut weight. So maybe that's the best way to go about it. But yeah, overall, maybe. generally fighters have gotten much better about it. Like even then in my, during my heyday of fighting in like the 
2014-15, we were still getting the more of the Wild West. I think since UFC has opened the Performance Institute and since it's become more widespread and all the crazy videos that popped out and the guys crying and people seeing the horrors behind it, I think slowly you've seen guys move up weight classes and you've seen guys just generally trying to cut less. Yeah, no, definitely. Hopefully it gets a little bit better. You hate to see guys draining themselves. It can't be good for the long-term health. But anyways, moving on to, you know, yourself and your jujitsu journey, you know, you mentioned you started, uh, walked into Dino's gym as a blue belt. Now you're a black belt and, um, you know, you've been doing a lot of teaching your Instagram account, I think is uh, so cool. I see you doing the fight breakdowns and, and breaking down different grappling sequences and Barry Robinson, who's I haven't had the pleasure of talking to him, but he's like an awesome Instagram boxing mind. And, um, you know, he's reposting your stuff all the time. And it seems like you're really starting to get noticed by a lot of like great teachers, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised. And it was Barry that got me into it. Like, uh, so I trained with Barry. I fought in China at some point. So my career took once I was with Dino in the beginning, I was with Dino, I stayed with him. And then I started traveling around the world to fight because I basically wanted to find any opportunity I could. I didn't have much money and I didn't want to have to work a full-time job and fight. So I just took every opportunity I could worldwide. And at some point I was offered a deal to come and be the, the fighter for camp in Thailand. So I was basically like the paid fighter. And I became a coach there later on that just had by accident from them seeing me help people. They're like, oh, you want to be hired as one of the coaches here? I got hired as a coach. But Barry was the head coach there. So I trained with Barry there and through many, many deep discussions because there's literally, I really don't believe there's very few people, maybe John Danaher that or have thought about fighting as deeply as Barry Robinson like into that extreme that's the truth like he's a he's a difficult guy at times you know I, I mean I know a lot of people that have I work with him are like well you know it's difficult but he is very very good at what he does and he's he thinks about this sport very differently in in a different he thinks it in a very regular sport way like you would basketball or football or any other sport you would break it down and you would think about things not so simple like oh you got you got touch him up man touch him up it's, it's not so simple, right? Like you, you don't tell a basketball player like, yeah, make sure you shoot better. Like, no, there's more mechanics that are put into it. Like <laughs> there's more drills that are made for him to shoot better. Like you, you don't see Steph Curry, his coach talking about, ah, that's just how he shoots. No, no it's not how he shoots. It's, it's not, you know, we don't talk like that. Like there's a way we train people for the NFL. There's a way we train people for the NBA. There should be a way we train people for mixed martial arts or martial arts in general. And Barry has that thought pattern. I agree very much so. And uh, Barry has always told me that I have a mind for it and I should keep, I should do it. And I've kind of avoided it because I avoided it because after I was done with fighting, I struggled to find, um, I really struggled to find what I'm going to do with, like how I'm going to have the success that I had more than success I didn't fight. And I'm like, oh, do I want to have a world champion? But the struggling to make enough money while, you know, being teaching privates and this and that at the same time, trying to take care of my fighters. I didn't, I didn't like the balance. Like I would either go too much for my privates, making too much money or go a lot towards my, my fighters. And I would be losing, have no money in the end of the day. So I kind of like, was like, forget it. I'm done with the fighting aspect. I'll just train 
everyday Joes and try to make money. And I don't want to take some kid's career in my hands and not give a hundred percent. Like I was just too worried about doing that to somebody. And uh, Barry was like, man, you got to go online. He's like, you got too good of a brain for this. Like every time we talk, I get new ideas. You need to, you need to do this. You need to do this. And finally he's like, do me a favor, break this down for me. He just told me, do this, do a quick 30 second breakdown for me. Grappler. I just need someone to do. I want to put some grappling. I was like, of course, man, I'll do it for no problem. I did it. And then he started sending me like all the comments and coaches. Like, look at this. Look at this coach. Look at this coach. Do me one more. Just one more. And then I'll do it. Okay, then one more. After like a few weeks of doing that, I got I got into it. And he made me promise I'm going to get like two a week for the next six, seven months. And if it doesn't go good, I can stop it. And if it does go good, I'll keep it up. And so far, I'm really happy. Like I've seen James Krause started following me and some uh, – it meant big names in the grappling world. They follow me and retweet and people are asking me to break down their fights. And I, I really, I'm really happy. I'm really happy that people are enjoying it and getting some value from it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm, I think Barry, man, like it's awesome that he pushed you into doing that because your videos are like very informative. Like they're entertaining. They're quick. Like you can get through them. And I think it's perfect. So I'll definitely keep doing it. And, um, you know, I'm curious now to ask you a few questions about some recent uh, UFC fights, which were nuts between uh, Volkanovski and Ortega. And speaking of grappling sequences, you know, that was uh, remarkable that Volkanovski was able to escape multiple submissions. Can you maybe shine some light or give us some jewels there on maybe what, I don't know if it was just pure grit that Volkanovski had to get out of that guillotine or that choke and then the triangle. But um, if you don't mind talking a little bit about that fight and, and what you saw from both guys in, in, in terms of the grappling. First of all, generally, as far as the fight goes, I was like, I couldn't stop myself with like jumping around. Like I was, <laughs> I had to watch it on my phone because I'm in Monaco, I'm in a hotel at the moment. And I could, my UFC fight pass has just been complete garbage. So I've been like, uh, trying to find the videos, like watching half around, like, oh my God, I got to find the other half and flipping out, you know, and uh, I, I thought it was amazing. But as far as the guillotine goes, like, look, a, a big percentage of that was happened to be with how relaxed and how tough Volkanovski is, right? Like, once you get put in a guillotine like that, there's basically a few things that are happening. One is closing your carotid arteries, so the blood stops flowing to your brain. And it's kind of closing down your trachea, which is giving you a hard time to breathe. What happens when that happens? Your heart rate actually, and especially when your heart rate's elevated, the blood's getting pushed up, you're getting panicky. The more you can't breathe, the more your heart rate's pumping, the more no blood's not going to the brain, the quicker you're going to pass out. A few things. Well, Sanofi stayed extremely calm considering the position that he was in. They kept his heart rate from going from exploding out of his chest, making him pass out a lot quicker, making him panic out before it was time. Yeah. Yeah. Two, he re did a really smart thing is that when he was pushing on to uh, off of uh, Brian Ortega's leg, he was pushing off of Ortega's leg downwards, like getting his hips so his hips weren't completely collapsing onto his, and he was able to get a full extension contorting the neck down. So he was blocking that, that small little wedge while his other hand was fighting the choke, and he was trying to get his head to turn inwards to get his get his chin out and under from inside the choke because the choke is closed here so he's trying to get like this so he can slip his head out 
from under. So while he's doing that, those little wedges that he made, one on the hip and on the leg, pushing down so Ortega couldn't completely straighten out the choke, two pushing his hips away so Ortega couldn't, again, close that distance, get hip to stomach pressure and close, and then it would have been over with. At some point, Ortega... Uh, he would uh, Ortega would have choked him. He would have finished him there. But Volkanovski made these small little changes and twisting of the head. Also, uh, another thing I think that really helps and it's really underrated is being completely your head completely shaved. Uh, yeah. I've realized I know it's kind of silly, but like I, if you see most of my fights, I shave my head, and the the reason was because Slippers I used to train with some. Right? Huh? Yeah, you slip out. You just, it's, I mean, it's as simple as there's less hair and you slip out. It's like less grip. It's a small difference, no doubt. It's not going to make you unguillotinable, but it will help. It will help. Maybe if you have three to four seconds left, like I'm pretty sure, I remember I heard Volkanovski talk on uh, Ariel Hawani and he was saying that he started getting that 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 tunnel closed. You know, that's kind of what happens when you get when you go to sleep. It's kind of like it's almost like a really slow, and I know you're dreaming of like unicorns, like out of nowhere it comes out. And he, I think he was getting there, but he's he's making these small little adjustments, controlling these small wedges, keeping himself calm, and he slid out in time. Like if he didn't have those small wedges, he wasn't calm. He wouldn't have had the time to get out before he before he passed out. Uh, then he was caught in a triangle. Yeah, moments later. Moments later, and one obviously his 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 mental grit again and his cardio are are out of this world. But to to get past those, come I mean, a lot of guys have been, they still wouldn't have gotten out of that. So it's not obviously not only that, right? Like not everybody's Volskanovsky. There's a lot of guys just as tough as Volskanovsky. I'm sure you know. Uh, but it's also his mental awareness. So he gets put in the triangle choke. He gets locked in. He drops down. You see, he kind of drops down. And that what it does is when the triangle choke, it's closing your arm across your artery. His leg is on your other part of your artery. And it's squeezing down. It's compressing. It's the choke. So he basically sacrificed his arm. By extending his arm, he could have got armbarred. That's a potential counter to that. When you extend your arm, you could get armbarred. He gave his arm out opened to open up that space to create blood flow to the head, felt his back, and started sneaking his head out in between the legs. It created just enough opening, and I'm sure due to the fatigue of Ortega, maybe if he was fresh, that would have been much more difficult to do. But because of the fatigue of Ortega, that lock of the triangle opened up slightly, and again, just enough for him to slip out, get on top, and start throwing it ground on top. I mean, just insane sequence of events there. As I was watching it, like yourself, I was jumping around, I was going nuts. And I was so shocked that Volkanovski was able to escape both of those because Ortega uh, is thought of, I mean, he, he is a tremendous uh, like ground practitioner, jujitsu practitioner. Um, and those are his like signature, you know, the triangle choke T-City, that's his signature exactly. uh, yeah, his move. And like, I was like, oh my God, now it's, it's over for sure now. And DC's going nuts. The announcers are going nuts. Next thing you know, Volkanovski's landing some crazy ground and pound on him. And it was just, uh, man, what a hell of a night. But there's been a lot of um, jujitsu wins, I feel like, in recent in, in recent memory. Even Brandon Moreno pulling off the choke against Figueredo. Um, you know, there's uh, it's not that there needs to be more of a light shined on jujitsu, because I think the UFC has, has really done that. In, in a big way, but um, 
there's always submission wins on these UFC cards. It just shows the importance of uh, that martial art. Well, look, I think I think MMA has gone through cycles, and these cycles have happened like a few times already, and they're going to happen more. Because it's such a young sport, right? Like if you look back in the beginning of, of MMA, but and we're talking about it from like the no holds barred era, jujitsu dominated from the standpoint of like Hoist Gracie. And then in Pride, you had guys like Hicks and Gracie, and then you had Henzo, and you had the entire Gracie family, and you had their lineage of students. And for the most part, they were winning, like the overwhelming majority. Like they didn't win every fight, but they won most of the fights. And grapplers. And then we went from that that style of grapplers that were winning. Then we got to wrestlers. And we had these guys that basically didn't know too much about jujitsu. But, you know, you taught them how to avoid an armbar and a triangle choke, and they're big, strong, and they've been grappling their whole lives. And then you got these monster American wrestlers like Mark Coleman, Dan Severn. Dan Severn had like a catch-as-catch-can background, but these kind of Mark Kerr, these kind of guys that they kind of went through, they had this style of like the monster wrestler. And that seemed like unstoppable at some point. And then we kind of found out how to defend against these, that kind of guy, that kind of fighter. You know, you had guys like Maurice Smith that beat Mark Coleman and, uh, we learned that this kickbox, like the sprawl and brawl, we then we moved on to like Chuck Liddell and guys of that nature, and they were dominating the sport for a while. And that was a new, that yeah. was a new way of fighting, a wave of fighting. And because it's such a, such a young sport, we're constantly learning and growing and finding new ways to combat, you know, how to combat the fighters that we, the styles that we saw before us that were successful. And right now we're at the point, I feel, that it's truly being integrated and jiu-jitsu is being integrated because striking and wrestling has already been kind of forming together for a while. Like uh, there's guys like Frank Edgar that really led the way on this. You know, the, he, he really showed how to integrate striking into wrestling in like a really, a really like flawless manner. You know, and it, it looked like artwork. You would see it, it was like, this is beautiful, or George St. Pierre. Yep. Now we're slowly slinging the striking, wrestling to grappling to jujitsu, from jujitsu back to wrestling, back to grappling. We're seeing that's the new, I think, uh, the new dimension that's being added to this flow of MMA. And that's why we're seeing a lot more submissions come up from the guys in, in modern MMA. Yeah, it's... Um... It's really interesting hearing you like talk about the evolution of the sport because it is very young. Like you forget how young yeah. <laughs> like this sport is and how good guys are going to be 20 years from now, 50 years from now. I mean, it's going to be absolutely insane. Like little kids who are training for MMA now. Um, I can't imagine because guys really, I mean, m- most guys in the, in the UFC, I feel like at this point started in one discipline. And then picked up the others. Like not a lot of guys are really just pure MMA guys from the from the start. Yeah, it's more popular than it was in the past. Yeah. Like obviously, because there's like 20-year-old kids now that watch sure. Ultimate Fighter that they're that they're now like, yeah, you know, I've been doing this since day one. Or maybe they wrestled in high school and then they picked up jujitsu and then they kind of like evolved through there. But it's not to the point that everybody's like that. And that's what it's going to be soon. And like, when it is that, can you imagine like what it's going to look like? I don't even have a clue. Yeah. What this is. I don't know. It's going to be like more fights like uh, Ortega and Volkanovski. Probably it's going to be just, I, yeah, I think it's going to be like, uh, 
I think it's going to be like the the Brandon Figure versus Figueroa fight. I think it's going to be like Ortega's the Ortega versus Volkanovski fight. I think we're going to see more and more of these kind of like exceptional, high level striking, high level grappling, high level cage work, high level scrambles, and uh, high IQ fighting. You know, we're going to be seeing people that are planning, coaches having play calling during fights. Like you're seeing it more and more now. Um, we're going to see like habits getting called out that have been happening, you know, over and over and kind of like just old habits getting killed. And I, I honestly believe in this is kind of controversial. Like I believe that the striking in MMA is going to evolve to a point past like past boxing because of, uh, because of the way boxing is taught in my opinion, uh, hasn't evolved in a long, long time. And uh, I always say that, in my opinion, boxing, if you consider regular sports training a science, boxing training is a religion. It's about like it's about faith. It's faith based. It's uh, very much like this kid got it or he don't got it or it's cream will rise of the cop or he doesn't stick his jab out. There's not much thought and there's not like a, like a very detailed programming way of training people in boxing. And I think the reason for that is that it stopped evolving at some point, like it stopped it's it's not becoming necessary to evolve while in mma because it's so young because it's so competitive you need to get you need that little like that whatever little advantage it could be you know whether it's like i need a new strength conditioning coach i need to be better on my diet i need to be better at jiu-jitsu i need to yeah. i need to incorporate my strength and my grappling that competition is driving the growth of the sport yeah, I and that, I, I think that makes sense i mean the what I'll say about boxing is, yeah, I think like a guy like Malik Scott, who's Deontay Wilder's new trainer, I think, and, and he's a friend of Barry's as well. And, and, and I think thinks, you know, so deep about the sport of boxing, he just lives, breathes it. So he kind of is definitely like a new age trainer, I believe, and is bringing like different thought processes into uh, fighting. But an interesting topic that I, I've spoke with um, with a few fighters and guys like about boxing is today's game compared to 20 years ago or you could go further back and you say like are the fighters of old worse than the guys now and it's usually the opposite like you look at Tommy Hearns and and Sugar Ray Leonard and and uh, Hagler and you know the heavyweights of that era and all these guys and you say, Hey, I think they would kind of, you know, dominate in today's game in their perspective weight classes. I mean, of course, Mayweather, but you get what I'm trying to say. A lot of these old school guys would do very well now. And that's usually never the case in any sport because the sport is constantly evolving and guys are getting better and better. So boxing, it's like the, the rate of, of, of uh, improvement for fighters is not, it's not a consistent upswing. And and yeah, and I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And that and I think that's a that's why I that's why I've come to that conclusion. Like, uh, not that I don't think that some guys are like. I think that there are guys like Canelo Alvarez. I believe yeah. is could compete Definitely. with anybody at any at any point in time in the history of boxing. And I think it's almost sometimes the nostalgia gets the best of us. Like, well, is LeBron James as good as Michael Jordan? Well, at the time of Michael Jordan, he was the greatest of all time. And I'm a much bigger fan of Michael Jordan, like uh, as a player, like that was my one of my childhood heroes. But if he could, Michael Jordan do what he did back then today, I highly doubt it. 
I highly doubt it, right? Like it seems unlikely. But do I believe that like the Roberto Duran of his prime could, could compete in today's divisions? Yeah, I believe he could very well compete. And I believe Canelo m- might also be able to compete then, but it's it's almost interchangeable, maybe with slight increases, not to the near the level of other sports. Yeah. Like from if you go back to the 1980s and the guy that ran the fastest hundred meters compared to today, we're not even on the same, we're not even playing the same sport anymore. Like he wouldn't even be on the bench, the gold medalist back in the day. Now in boxing, that's not the case. Those guys can come in here and work. And MMA, forget about it. Like, okay, MMA is too much of a baby. I don't even think it's fair, but in MMA, a champion from 1998 or from 2002 or whatever, he's, he's not going to do anything today. He's going to get, get embarrassed. It's not going to yeah. be fun to watch the fight. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, most boxing gyms that I've been to most uh, in the world, this is worldwide, uh, when they teach boxing, they teach the same thing. And either you got either you're kind and i see the people develop either they're kind of good they're kind of good already they're kind of like they got it they kind of catch it naturally they're good or they're not and the guys that aren't they stay kind of like shitty and the guys that are good they keep getting a little bit better kind of on talent alone and like naturally figuring out and they do a lot of their training is bashing each other's head and sparring full blast are they hitting the pads which that hasn't well. That wasn't how. Uh, that wasn't how Hearns trained. That wasn't how Hagler trained hitting or the pads. Ali, or, yeah, Ali was big. Ali. He, did, he never hit focus mitts. Yeah, and the and so what are these uh, th- these methods of training and development? They really haven't been like pushed. Like no one's like, hey, this is how we develop a boxer. And there's some coaches like that I really rank highly on this, and like. Uh, you know, Barry Robinson's obviously one. Dino's one that I rank really high. I rank, I'm sure there's guys like Freddie Roach that are really good at, at developing their fighters. But I do I do think that most guys, most boxing coaches spend more time telling stories and uh, talk about get behind the jab, son, than much of anything else. Like, there's not much going on. Like, I, I mostly don't, like, I've been to many boxing coaches around the world. I didn't learn much of anything. And that, I'm, I'm obviously not very talented either. Like, I'm not the best boxer in the world. Like, I boxed with Dino. I found the Golden Gloves. I made it to the semifinals at some point. I mean, I was, I was half-assed at best. Yeah. No doubt yeah. about it, right? I'm not, I'm not pretending to be anything good. But I didn't get much from many people. Like, I got what I got from Dino. And I got a bit what I got from Barry. And I got, like, little bits of stuff from some other guys. Like, nothing that, like, drove home that I felt like, man, I'm I, my game's changed. Well, I've gone to jiu-jitsu gyms, went to one trainer, and left with a different game by the time i came when my flight got back to wherever i was going i was a different competitor when i got on the mats i was a different guy like i had a different tool set that i could drill i had a move i knew how to train that move and i knew how to execute that move and how to practice it while in boxing you're giving me a lot of theory but there's no test. There's no actual work. My only test is this is how you do it. Get behind the jab. Okay, hit the pad. That's a little different than the fight. Maybe punch the bag by yourself. And now let's get in there and spar this guy. And let's see what happens. And like, if, <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's a that's a game. And then you get punched in the face hard a couple of times. You go back to whatever you're good at. And it rinses and repeats. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's, it, it's an interesting topic about just the overall development of boxing, the training methods. You know, there's, of course, there's a lot of old school guys. Um, not all bad, you know, some of them are, are great, great coaches. Um, but the overall development, I feel like has been sort of stagnant. You can see that through the pro ranks and, and there's not a huge improvement from the last 20 years, let's say how we talked about but to switch gears a little bit one one thing i wanted to talk about i just think it's kind of a cool story and get your perspective on it is um you know when the gracie brothers were were dominating the jujitsu scene and 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 winning those early no hold barred fights then you had a guy in japan sakuraba right who who came over and he said you know i'm gonna be the gracie killer I represent Japanese jujitsu, not this Brazilian stuff. And he was, you know, he was collecting Gracie heads for a while. Um, I'm just kind of curious, like from your perspective as a jujitsu guy, and obviously someone who's very knowledgeable, like maybe the differences in his game to the traditional Gracie style and like the differences between that Japanese traditional style, like where it originated and, and now what's become more popular in BJJ. So Kizuji Sakuraba was a pro wrestler and he trained uh, in the shoot fighting style of pro wrestling, uh, which is more of a catch as catch can uh, type of wrestling, which in the back in the day was, was, was real, like originally. And it basically was a type of submission grappling, right? So it was like a wrestling with submissions uh, with a heavy emphasis on like pins and, uh, like attacks for submissions not so much positional attacks for submissions like that like maybe the the difference would be um that uh maybe the difference would be that i'm i'm instead of going for a kimura right i'm gonna go for a kimura and from the top position inside control. I'll take my time, I'll wrap the arm, I'll control the far leg, I'll get my position, I'll wrap it up, I'll look to see if I can grab it, see if I can turn you on. Catch his can, it's more like, I don't care if you have my back, I got the opportunity to get this submission, I'll go for it, you know, and, and try to get this attack. That's kind of like the, one of the philosophical, at least that's the touted philosophical difference. I'm not actually that sure because I never trained catch a sketch can. I've only read about it because I was a fan. So it wasn't uh, it was Japanese jujitsu. Like that wasn't no, okay. Was, that was no, that wasn't that wasn't because you said so Brazilian jiu-jitsu is Japanese jujitsu, but with with some uh with some adjustments. So yeah. The the story goes. Medita, I, just Sak- I just thought that Sakuraba, like part of the rivalry, was he was kind of saying, at least in, in some doc that I watched, or they were kind of pitching it as like he looked at the grace. He's like, "You stole our mar- martial art, and I'm going to show you like our way is better." But maybe I, I don't. Up. Maybe that was what it was touted. But I know his style. He comes from Carl's Gotch's lineage. Carl's Gotch was a very famous pro wrestler back in the day, and. uh in Sakuraba was a very was a was a decently not very famous but a decently famous shoot wrestler in the W, in the UWFI, which was a shoot wrestling federation at the time, which was a basically a very hard strong style of pro wrestling. It was still scripted, but it had uh, it looked very much like an MMA fight. Okay. And uh, so Sakuraba the I, the reason why Sakuraba the the rivalry between the Gracies and Sakuraba happened is. Pride was based off of Takada 
who was a very famous pro wrestler in Japan and like was the superstar challenged Hicks and Gracie, who was the leader of the Gracie clan. And they had two super fights in Japan for this new show called Pride, which is why Pride was created, excuse me, for these super fights. Uh, so they were created for these super fights. Hen, uh, Hickson won both, both uh, fights. And then Sakuraba was put up against, I'm pretty sure it was Henner. I think it was Henner, his first fight. Uh, maybe, no, maybe it wasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. He put up against one of the Gracies at first. He won uh, the, uh, some, with the submission of Keylock, and it was semi-controversial because the, the guy didn't tap. It was stopped by the referee. And uh, then another, then Hoist fought for the honor of the Gracie family and had a special rules where it couldn't end, uh, it could only end by stoppage. And they fought for 90 minutes. Yeah, and Hoist fought in the game, which is fucking insane. I, I can't imagine being in a fist fight for 90 minutes of any kind. <laughs> With no rounds, kind, right? Just you know. straight. Oh, they, they had rounds. I think it was oh, 10 minute rounds. rounds or something. 10 rounds. Or something. But it was just, that might have made it worse. Like, at least if it's straight, that you're both tired. But you got one guy that's getting a minute rest. It's good enough for him. And Sakuraba battered Hoist to the point that Hoist's father, Helio, stopped the fight. Um, and then that became like he's known as a Gracie hunter. He became Japan's legend, the guy that could beat the Gracies, you know. And then he fought Henzo in a very famous fight. He uh, movie catches Henzo Gracie in what is called the Kimura. So Henzo Gracie had his back and had his hands around his waist as if he's going to take him down. Mm -hmm. Sakuraba weaved his one hand under over the tricep in between his uh, elbow and forearm. He grabbed his own wrist, and then with his other hand, he grabbed the other wrist. He twisted, turned his body weight to the outside, rotating Henzo and snapping Henzo Gracie's arm. Henzo didn't tap. The ref stopped the fight because the arm was completely snapped. And became, he became an immediate icon at that point. Then he beat another Gracie as well. And um, fresh, off of, uh, fresh off of some cigarettes, right, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's one thing I've, I've always thought about with fighting I found funny like you know Dino told me this story once with James Tony that he was uh, I think it was him and Frez and James Tony back at some point they were training together and they went to go let's go on a run and James Tony like was in like a full velour suit he came to run like okay let's start and James Tony took two stop, two jogs stopped laughed pulled out a cigar and started smoking and went back to the gym which is laughing at them while they were running and I don't I don't remember ever seeing James Tony get too tired in a fight you know I get oh, yeah there is something too just a mindset of someone like who's just like a robber or someone like James Tony that just kind of like whatever we're just we're just scrapping I'm not getting too stressed out about anything if it, they really just don't get tired. <laughs> yeah, no, I get what you mean. Like there are guys like that who just have kind of sneaky cardio. I mean, Sakuraba obviously had it. I mean, I saw stories like in the locker room, literally before the fight, he'd be like smoking cigarettes and like, you know, hanging out, like <laughs> yeah. fighting for 90 minutes. So he had, he clearly had something going on with his cardio. Man, it's, I think it's like a level of relax, it's like a level of tranquility in their in their general demeanor and their general being in the ring and their comfort in a fight that it's it's so 
it's so not intense for them like it is for other people that like everybody else is on high octane nine and they're like on like a four and they're just in there like yeah whatever i'm getting smashed it's okay i'm gonna just move over here do a little like it's it's too relaxed like there's nothing going on to get too stressed out about get too tired (laughs) that's probably what it is yeah they got like a super low heart rate or something there i don't know yeah yeah it's incredible I, i remember i had a fight once I had a fight and I fought this guy that was, he was like a super, like a super like tough kid. He was seven and old Bulgarian guy. And I was fighting him in Greece. So it was my first fight ever in Greece at this point. I was on a three fight losing streak. This guy's seven and oh, and I'm thinking, man, if I lose this fight, my career is over, you know? And I'm the main, I'm like the main event in Greece. It was the first MMA event ever in Greece. And there's like all my family's there. And I come out the gate and I normally have, great cardio it's one thing i've never been a really muscled guy like i'm way more muscled now than i ever was as a competitor like uh and i was i came out and just the the fact that i was like on 10 you know on 10 my i was getting gas from everything i was doing like every movement i was making i felt like like i had to take a deep breath and finally like at some point he caught me in a really tight guillotine and I escaped out of that and actually escaping out of that. And I kind of really like, man, this guy, like this guy ain't shit. Like this guy really don't got shit. Like that was, I was fighting like an idiot and I see still don't got shit. And I kind of calmed down and then beat him up for the rest of the three rounds. It was fine. But like, I was so tired in like the first two minutes of the fight. I thought, I thought I'm going to pass out. Like I really don't have any cardio. I and mean, I was just so over the top, excited and nervous and whatnot. Yeah, it's just like that adrenaline dump, maybe like that, that got you early. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like an adrenaline dump, and it's like there's there's this feeling of like this feeling of anticipation, you know, like it's like I'm anticipating this like uh, major explosion conflict between uh, me and my uh, me and my opponent, and um, I that that anticipation as it grows if it's really large it, it, it zaps you you know it zaps you it zaps you a lot like if you ever if you ever been on like if you ever like wait to get hit and like someone's like i'm gonna punch you in the stomach like, and they don't hit you and they just fake it and like you let go you almost feel like it's like like you're almost like you, you lost like so much energy waiting to get that hit you know and if you if you're over if you're over anticipating the fight for for everything the fear of losing your family being there excited the win the loss everything it can feel like it just like sucks whatever little bit of cardio you have well if you go on then whatever i'm just i'm here to do what i'm gonna do and it is what it is you're just fine you just don't feel anything yeah yeah it's true. It's true. You got to be relaxed, right? I think like some of the, a lot of the top athletes in any sport, like have a way to, to have unreal composure and, and show up relaxed and that helps them perform. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen it whenever I've watched some of like the, my, my more high level training partners, like when I, when I'm in the gym with them, like I'll see, I'll see them get ready for the fight. And when I see them in the fight, I'm like, how did you went from being like a complete freaking nerve and then you're in the fight i might even be cornering them and i'm looking at them and they're just like it's like i know they got into like this relaxed flow they're just chilling and slipping and they're back in the corner i'm like you were breathing heavier on the pads when i was holding pads for you to get out there what happened are there any guys that you're working with right now that uh you know we should keep an eye on or anybody fights coming up or anything like that 
Well, I, I'm not because I'm now I'm, I'm mostly just doing only things virtually online. Yeah. Uh, I'm obviously supporting whoever I can. That's friends of mine, like uh, like Luzarski, Dinovich and uh, people of that nature, whoever Dino got, like Daniele's fighting this weekend. I'm, I'm always supporting all of them and Joe Fournier. Even though I'm not training Joe anymore, I'm like, I'm a huge supporter. He's a super good friend of mine. Uh, but one kid I, I kind of work as like a mentor with uh, his name is Sotiri Kaseluri. We call him So Cheese because in Greek, Sotiri, if you cut it, So Diri is cheese, So Cheese. We call him So Cheese. And he's fighting uh, in the show called Quest, uh, a Quest Three. Yeah, Quest Three MMA. It's one of the only shows in Greece going on right now since the pandemic because of these very uh, strict cool. measures that yeah, are going on. Um, that and Cage Survivor. And uh, I have one kid, uh, Alex Arhodulakis, his nickname is Bieber. These two kids have been like my, they were like my, some of my first, not my first MMA students, but they're, they're two of my like really close young MMA students that kind of came to me as children. And uh, so I kind of have like a big brother feel over them. And I'm, I'm, I semi-mentor them through their careers as obviously they've had to go to other coaches because I, I don't have time to, coaching my I, I travel around the world uh, 300 days a year so wow. i'm never in one place yeah yeah and, and <laughs> i'm never i'm never in one country for more than two months so oh, actually wow. less yeah that's incredible um yeah. well all right well we will uh look out for those guys and um you know tony thanks so much for the time and also keep posting those breakdown videos i think they're awesome i think they're just going to continue to catch steam and more and more people are going to take notice. Um, I think you really got something with that. So thanks a lot for, for hopping on and, and talking about your story, talking about jujitsu, the UFC, all the topics we covered. Hope uh, when you're back in the States, maybe down in Miami, I can uh, meet you up for a coffee or something at fifth street and uh, say hello to Dino as well. Oh, 100%. I'm going to probably be out in Miami on the 29th of October. So when I'm out there, I hope to I'll see you. I'll be there. Before. All right, man. Really, I appreciate the time and the effort. And uh, thanks for the shout outs for the breakdowns. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And Let everyone know where they can uh, follow you on Instagram so they can check those breakdowns. Yeah, just at Tony.ChristoDulu. And you can spell it Christ Odulu. It's a little long, but yeah. Once you start writing, it should come up. <laughs> yeah we'll put the link in the bio as well so we'd be ready to rock um tony thanks again appreciate it man and uh i'll see you later in october definitely brother thanks a lot Peace.